podcast one production. The Health Hacker with Adam McDougall. In Health Hacker, we break down a health topic for you on each episode. But this is a Health Hacker interview where we find out from inspiring people how they've hacked their lives and then pass this knowledge on to you. We call it Hacking the Hackers. And in this episode, we speak to Chris Judd, one of the greats to play Australian football, both captain of West Coast Eagles and Carlton Football Club, but also now a life in finance as well. From footy to finance, he joins us on Hacking the Hackers. And more importantly, a father of four. Hey, how the hell do you do four kids? <laughs> we're uh, we're at capacity, well and truly. Um, and twins to finish off the the equation. Twins. It would be strange to go back after you have <laughs> twins and they carry it four. But I still see people with four kids now, yeah. and look at them and go, "Oh, that'd be hard." I mean, that's, that's, that's what we've got now. So uh, we're at capacity, but so so are uh, lots of people with young kids. But uh, it's all it's all working out okay so far. Well, you're so successful, and you know, I got to meet you a number of years ago, and. Um, we both had a lot more hair back in them days, um, but certainly the career you had in AFL, do you use a lot of them lessons that, you know, you applied to be successful there in your daily life? Yeah, look, I do. Um, you know, I, I hear things written about, say, chess players and they see the world through chess moves and football's had such a huge impact on my life um, from such an early age that a lot of things I encounter, I really do equate back to life lessons learned throughout football and really you know, any group activity, you can use that to explain high performance, why people haven't succeeded, what makes groups successful. Um, so a lot of what I do come back to in my day-to-day job, there, there's some crossover around group dynamics when you're looking at companies to invest in and whatnot, but there's also uh, lots of things that football obviously doesn't capture as well. So what would you say is the most important element to success? Uh, I think if you want to have uh, be more successful than other people, you need to be prepared to do things that they're not prepared to do. Lovely. And those those things need to be efficacious to what you're trying to achieve. Um, and it's as simple as that, you know, putting off instant gratification for something you want more in the future is such a basic lesson, be it for footballers or, or for, for businesses. Uh, but people find that really hard to do. And increasingly with social media and the short-term attention span that people have, have they're finding that harder and harder to do, which creates the opportunity that, for people that are able to take a longer-term view and sacrifice something in the short term. What a great answer, Alex. What about that? I love that. I always say that, um, you know, to be great at anything in life, you've got to enjoy suffering and being uncomfortable. Um, I find that's something that people aren't willing to do as much these days. Would you agree? Uh, I think that's true. I think every generation's probably said that yeah. about their, their current generation. <laughs> We're sounding and, old. <laughs> well, but I think it's true. Um, I, yeah, I do. I think it's true. I mean, I, I have a, had a discussion the other day with a group around reliability so they, they wanted me to speak about reliability to, to their workforce. Uh, as in relying on each their, each other or relying on external stakeholders? As in what makes an employee reliable. Right. right? And I thought about that in a footballing context. And I actually think that's very different to what makes someone hyper-competent. Mm. So like you touched on the, the hyper-competent, the elite athletes, to me there's an edginess to them because they – they do have something that makes them different. They mm. usually are completely obsessive in what they do and that's why they get to a level that others don't. Yeah. The reliable players for me are in that middle rung bracket that you know what you're going to get. They don't, not quite as edgy, yeah. but they're predictable in their behaviours. Um, so there are risks to those outliers yeah. that want to want to be an outlier and what they put themselves through. And some don't make it. Some overtrain, they fall off a cliff, they get injured, yep. or they try and do something different that isn't effective for what they're trying to achieve. Yeah. And they don't make it either and they become an outlier at the other end. But um, 
that's something I've been thinking about a bit recently as yeah, well. Yeah, I have too. I think um, I always say if you want extraordinary results, don't get ordinary people. Yeah. You need people that are a bit extraordinary in their behaviours or in yes. their mental focus, you know, so extreme. Yeah, too. Um, if I ever talk to our younger players and they're, they're all come to that discussion because they say they want to be better, uh, if you can't articulate what you're doing that other people in other teams aren't doing, what gives you reason to believe you're going to be any better or your improvement's going to be any more rapid. So you need to be clear on what your edge is, what your point of difference is and why you're willing to execute that and others aren't. And the good thing about it is people are really predictable. Yeah. So, you know, you know that when people feel discomfort in a sporting sense, they'll stop exercising. Yeah. If people are hungover, they won't want to go and exercise. Yeah. People have been in the gym for an hour already. They won't want to do 15 minutes extra if they don't have to. Yeah. So the fact that other people that you're competing against are predictable uh, means it's not that difficult to work out what you need to do to succeed. It's difficult to execute it because it requires drive and, and energy yeah, and everything else. And why is a big part of that, isn't it, as well? I always say to people, you have to understand what your why is. What's your why these days to get out of bed? Four kids, um, you know, a lot of people say it's their kids that are the reason why they get up in the morning. What's yours? To be honest, I'm driven about uh, how I invest my time. Yep. So I had a, a small period and a couple of years working in a venture capital fund and yep. got some exposure and continue today to get exposed to lots of people working in the finance industry. Uh, and I was always struck by how many people who are really wealthy and completely financially independent but don't spend their time doing the things they want to do. Yeah. Uh, and I, I watched these people how careful they were with their due diligence when they were working out where they were going to commit their money, yeah. but they were willing to commit their time doing things they didn't want to do. Yeah. And when they're 80 or, or 90, they'll gladly trade all the wealth they've accumulated for more time. Yeah. It just didn't make any sense That's that they great. weren't analysing it uh, currently while yeah. they were young and, and still had some good yeah. years of living yeah. in front of them. So yeah. that's uh, that's my main objective. I want to be learning things. Yep. I want to be contributing value to others. I want to be making some money. Yep. And I don't want to – but the main thing is I don't want to be spending time doing things that don't cover any of those three topics or doing things that I don't want to do. So how have you split that up? Do you have your week split up into those three factors or do you look at your day or is it kind of like a, a rolling thing where one's sort of doing well means the other ones might have dropped off? Look, to be honest, right now I've got about seven part-time jobs. So it's, it's uh, <laughs> that's what it is. I've, I, um, I do some radio yeah. here at, at, at Triple M. Uh, I do some TV on Channel 9, yeah. running a private investment fund where I invest in microcap stocks. Yeah. I've got a, a finance podcast. I've got an apparel brand I'm a founder of. Um, on the Carlton board, so it, it's it's. Um, I'm tired just thinking about that. I, I'm yeah, just, well, it's, it is. Incredible. In yeah. fairness, it is time to specialise. Yeah. So you, you're never going to get really good at one thing yeah, yeah. if you're doing so many different things. But when you finish professional sport, you're still working out where your skill set really lies yeah. and and what you're most interested in doing. So I'm gradually starting to do more and more finance stuff mm. and focusing on on microcap listed equities, which is what I spend the bulk of my time doing. Um, and so that's yeah, – and, and then like you touched on at the start, the most important thing to, to save time and energy for is four kids and yeah. a wife who has agreed to continue with the experiment for another week. Yeah. So that's um, – <laughs> is, is there a system that you've brought in to help you manage so many things? Like you said, you've gone, right, let's look at seven things that I'm really interested in and then you'll start to specialise from there and, and that kind of like expand and contract as you go. To manage all that plus wanting to be a, a good dad and have values and think about your own mental health and physical health – how do you manage all that from a practical point of view? Is it like spreadsheet based or is it all in your noggin? No, we, I mean, my wife and I exchange calendar invites constantly about who's <laughs> doing what. And then we, early on in, 
our experience with having kids, we decided it was going to be much cheaper to to pay for help than to get a divorce. Yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> that's what we do. And we've got my parents are, are around and have been incredible uh, help and, and we just get by. But it's the same story for anyone with young kids, yeah, isn't it? Working, yeah. um, we're both, both parents work and they're trying to, you know, keep the bills paid and, and keep the kids fed. So it's, it's not like that's an overly unique story. Yeah, that's no. just what it's like when you've, you've got young kids and both parents are working. I love your definition of what success is and that is finding what you're truly passionate about but that allows you then to, to do what you want on your own terms. I've always said when I retired from rugby league that what I wanted to do when I finished was being able to go to work when I wanted to go to work. Yeah. And that's great. For me, you know, wealth is freedom to make choices you want to make on a daily basis. But I think you've got to be realistic too. When you've come out of a professional sporting environment, you would have been the same as yeah. me, probably from the age of four or five, you would have dreamed of becoming yeah. a professional NRL player, I'm assuming. Certainly yeah, I did yeah, as I an did, AFL yeah, player. Yeah, 100%. So I think sometimes people struggle post-football because they think, well, that that was my huge passion. Yep. Where's my next passion? But you, you need to give it a little bit of time to develop because you haven't been dreaming of something else from the age of four. Yeah. Uh, so you need to be a little bit of, there needs to be a bit of patience required. Um, I think that's one of the things people can struggle with when they do leave a career that they're so passionate about yeah. and expect to have a new passion that's just as strong just around the corner. Yeah, I think the biggest mistake players make is they think their whole identity is as a footballer mm. and they don't see the fact that what was it they were doing as a footballer that made them complete and happy. So, you know, as a footballer, you go out every single week and it's very tangible. You set a goal, you get a feedback on your performance, you know, you're working hard, you're getting that that result. You know, it's very easy to sort of get caught up and say, I'm just a footballer, but it's the, the, the I suppose, the needs that it's fulfilling every week that makes you happy. I think the big thing people don't understand when they leave professional sport is they don't understand the slide down the social hierarchy that they're experiencing. Yep which is ingrained into not just people but other animals as well. And Jordan yeah. Peterson talks yeah. a lot about that. But footballers... Expand on that. That's great. Well, so footballers, um, you know, footballers get drafted as an 18-year-old mm. and if they become any good, they quickly climb the social hierarchy. And you know that's the case because newspapers quote what they say, whether yeah. that's on football or an abstract topic which they they don't have a particular skill in commenting on. Yeah. Um, and they get paid really well, which is another, which what happens when you climb the social hierarchy. These yeah. are all things that society decides or society innately measures as success. Yep. Uh, and other animals have social hierarchies as well. And there's different things to show that their animals in those hierarchies are climbing or falling. And then players stop playing and they just uh, crater down the social hierarchy because they're not playing anymore. Yep. They don't have anything they're hyper-competent at to replace it with. And I think there's this battle where people, uh, you know, players, their skill set when you retire in other fields is really low. Yeah. Well, that's just the way it is. Yeah. But where you sit in the social hierarchy is still higher than your skill set in your new chosen field. Yeah. So players struggle to say, right, I've just got to take the hit here. Mm. I've got to go to being a, an intern or, a, you know, a rookie in a new work environment yeah. before they can then climb the social hierarchy. You're going to get competent at that new skill. Um and players really wrestle with that, and I don't think they're aware of what they're wrestling with. They just know that I used to be viewed as a big deal by society. Yeah. Now the only job I can get is a B-grade job here. Yeah. By taking that job, I'm accepting that I've completely plummeted down the social hierarchy, and it just is uncomfortable for them to deal with, but I don't think they're really aware of what's happening. That's a great. I've never heard that before. That's brilliant, yeah. So I think that's the biggest problem in rugby league is the fact that nobody's acknowledged that. 
No, and people don't talk about it. And they, I think subconsciously they sort of know it's happening. Yeah. But I don't think they can really articulate it. And there's, there's always, it's not a one rule for all. Some players study in a lawyers by the time they finish and they yeah. cascade into a new career. Some players stay in the industry too. And you, you can be a reasonably competent coach really soon after finishing as a player. So they don't experience it. But for players that want to move into a horizontal field, uh, it's something they have to get comfortable with. Yeah, I find it fascinating that you've chosen to go into a field that's very solo-based. You're a great captain. You're a great leader of men. And now you're your own master of your own ship. So it's just you. You're obviously um, doing the finance stuff and the the uh, the analyst-based uh, uh, stuff that you have to do. It'd be pretty isolated and lonely, wouldn't it? It can be, yeah. yeah. So there's some other investors who I'll invest alongside with. Yeah. But even that's complicated with mm. microcap stocks because once you become a seller – guys you were investing alongside with at the start, you're all on opposite teams all of a sudden because of liquidity issues in that space. Um, But yeah, I I just didn't have any desire. I I didn't want to manage people um, or work in and work in a workforce and sit in work in progress meetings and and deal with the human issues, which some people are good at or or some people are interested in. I just wanted to to dedicate more time to to things that I enjoyed or or to things that were going to teach me something, and uh, I wouldn't have been any good managing a, a team of people. So I'm, I'm glad I don't have to. I think well, though a lot of people it takes a lot of time to figure out what are my strengths, what do I enjoy, um, and for as people listen to this podcast football, it might not be something they're doing, but they might work in a corporate company or might be a sole trader and understanding where that you want to shift to in the future is very important. So how did you come to that realization of going, you know what, I actually want to go this without a master above me at the moment? Well, it takes a bit of time. So I think it's dangerous to just look at other people you admire and say, I'm going to follow that path. So by that, when I was playing football, the business people I looked up to the most that I knew well were entrepreneurs. Yeah. Um, it, it's, they'd been in startups and managed them and managed big teams of people and grown those businesses. And because they were people I really admired, that was that was my plan of what I would do. Uh, and then I, as time went on, I, I gradually became clearer on what I was good at and what I wasn't good at. And politicking or managing groups of people is just not my skill set. Yeah. I'm, I'm can think clearly about things. I'm not emotional. So, um, and, I, and I'm highly disagreeable. So think being disagreeable <laughs> is often linked to competitiveness. It's yeah. a good trait when yeah. you're an athlete. Um, it's a bad trait if you're an employee taking orders yeah. uh, to be disagreeable, but it's also good as an investor. When you're an investor, you're it's a Jim Grant saying, but effectively you need people to agree with you later. Yeah. So you're saying the market's wrong with the price that they're paying for this company. I'm going to pay that price because I think the market's wrong and I think in six months' time or 12 months' time, the market will come around to my way of thinking. So being disagreeable is really suited to being an investor, but it's not really suited certainly to working underneath people. Not great if you've got a really disagreeable manager either. Yeah. Um, mm. But that I didn't have that knowledge when I first retired, I just looked at the businessmen I really admired and thought, I'm going to be like them. And then but- realised, I suppose to paraphrase you, you figured out that I'll just play to my forehand and, and the things that I'm naturally good at doing or not good at doing, I'll do more of those things and, and pivot to where those strengths are. Yeah. And I think there's a book I read recently. I can't remember the author's name. It's 21 Problems for the 21st Century. It's a great book. Uh, but the the main message to come out of that is the key, if you're t- talking to kids, what's the What's the most important thing 
you need going forward and it's to know yourself better than the algorithm knows you. Mm. <laughs> and, but I think that's true. I think that's true. You see so many people, they're getting pushed so much information from be it social media or various other short-term news places that's really catered to their own, to what the computer already knows about you. Yeah. And if you're not clear on who you are and what your skill set is, that algorithm's pushing and pulling you in any direction it wants to make sales or, or to profit from you wherever it can. Uh, and that's my learnings from that experience. So actually taking the time to really learn more about myself, where my skill sets lie. I think that's been important in choosing a career path that I'm going to be actually good at and that I'll enjoy. And those two are the same. Good luck enjoying something you're bad at. It just doesn't happen. So um, that's where I'm at and it, it's going all right so far. Yeah, I find it really ironic that he's such a great leader on the football field, yet now he's chosen not to be a leader once again off the footy field and people would pay him a lot of money if he wanted to go and speak to about leadership. Team, yeah. But I had growth. Yeah. I, I'm, yeah. I'm up front. Like yeah. I, I would have been a better leader if I was stronger at relationships. Yeah. I, I, your actions were really how you... Yeah, I, I, I'm really comfortable saying I was a cultural hero for the football club because I could sacrifice more than anyone else yeah. to attain a longer-term goal. Yeah. Um, but certainly dealing with, you know, young guys that weren't up to scratch, I could have put more energy into to nursing them through it. You know, I was effective dealing with people that were pretty high achievers already yeah. and expediting their growth. But yeah. there's certainly things that would have made me a better leader if I was stronger in that relationship space. Well, well what about as a father? Um, what, are the, what are the ways that you lead your kids? I know that um, myself, I've got a bad temper and I swear too much in front of my kids. Are there certain things as a father that you, um, you know, I, I suppose uh, have strengths in? Oh, of course, strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, that's why people say, why don't you get into coaching? Yeah. And that's the reason. I, I've got four kids at home that I've require a huge amount of energy yeah. for me to build a relationship with that's hugely important. I'm amazed at how much energy the coaches can put into relationships with 18 and 19-year-olds yeah. and still have enough left on the table when they get home. Yeah. Um, but what are my strengths as a – you know, I think I'm pretty good at charging towards discomfort as a dad. Yeah. So – I'm happy to play the long game where if the kids arc up and they throw a tantrum because they want something, I'm, I'm comfortable enough letting that tantrum right out because I understand the long-term implications of yielding to poor behaviour. Um, but, yeah, like everyone, I, I lose temper. I'm on my phone too much, Yep. Um, which is a constant thing I'm trying to improve on. Um, but uh, the good thing about parenting is it's not a, a competition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the main thing is just showing up and doing your best. <laughs> yeah. And as soon as you turn it into a competition, good luck. Because there'll mean? always be someone on Instagram that looks like they're doing a better job. <laughs> right. It's like a competition with the outside world when you look at someone else and you go, oh, dad's surfing with his kid. Why am I yeah, not doing yeah, that yeah. kind of thing? Yeah. How do you manage technology at home? Uh, well, I, I don't model it as well as I'd like to. So I should be on the phone less. I try, if there's nothing pressing in terms of a, a trade or a, a phone call or a text message I'm waiting for, I will try and put my phone away from me. Once it's on me, I end up, picking it up and checking emails or something else. So I try and do that. We we don't have a, uh, a PlayStation. It's been an arm wrestle with Beck, my yeah. wife, because she wants to get one. Really for her own purposes because she wants to play Mario Kart. <laughs> my wife wants Guitar Hero. So. Yeah, so I've put my foot down there. Um, they've got an iPad on. They've got an iPad that they'll play every now and then. Yeah. Um, but we're managing that okay. It's a fine line too yeah. because if you completely outcast technology, good luck on your kids surviving in the next 100%. 50 years because yeah, yeah. it's such an important part of of our world and, and their world as well. But um, there's also costs, isn't there? If, yeah, if that yeah. becomes your primary force of living, yeah. then you, you miss out on, on the real world. So 
you can see what those things are trying to serve. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I can see exactly what Fortnite is trying to serve. Yeah. It's the same what football tries to serve for young men. You know, young men, you grow up, you become a man, you leave the village, you fight the metaphorical dragon. That's what you do in football <laughs> yeah. every week. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and you come back, you share your knowledge with the village. <laughs> you know, that's what you do if you want to become a coach. What a great Fortnite yeah. analogy. Fortnite, that's what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. But people aren't actually doing it. They're not actually risking anything. Yeah. They're trying to get that same, um, that same need that young people have needed for – since the beginning of time, it's not like this is a new thing. When you look at Bible stories, they're, they're telling the same narrative. Um, so I understand what people are trying to get from Fortnite or games like that, but I just don't think it's as powerful as doing it and living it in the real world. Yeah. I mean, but on that though, I mean, there's the rise of football e-clubs um, and people are going yeah. to cinemas and they're going to mm. um, whole stadiums to watch people yeah. play video games. You know, there is a whole future of that. Do you think though even doing it in a – a digital-based way can still create that thing of unity if you are all in the same room together. Like that community does happen, although it starts online, it eventually becomes in real life, even though they're playing online again. Like potentially. A, like, you know what I yeah, mean? Potentially. It's, 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 and it's, it's a weird it's, space. And it's in. the same. Those video gamers are sprinting up the social hierarchy. They're really good at something. They're getting valued. They're making money. So more strength to them. But if – um, I mean, the difference is when you compare it to the millions of kids then just sitting at home in their room – isolated, getting overweight, um, creating poor habits. Mm. Um, it's different to kids that are going out and playing football at their local team. And even if they're never going to make it to that to the professional ranks, they're, they're getting fitter and they're building lots of life skills that they can use elsewhere in life. I don't think there's as many life skills yep. that you get from sitting in, in your bedroom at your mum's house playing video games in your, your mid-20s. The Health Hacker with Adam McDougall. Adam and I usually ask our guests, um, what's your daily routine if you have one to keep you fit but also working and also being a good dad? Yeah, I don't have one as – I like routines. I struggle in footy season. So my, my weeks are bookended by media where Monday night, you know, I go to the office at, at 8 o'clock and, and do my work and then I'm on TV Monday night and get home about 11.30, mm. which is a, it's a big – you know, 15, 16-hour day. It's a big day. Yeah. Um, and then Friday night, I, I do the same thing, uh, bookended with radio. So mm. I struggle to get up at six and do my exercise first thing in the morning during winter, mm. even though that's what I do in summer. So that's your go-to habit, try and get exercise out early in the day? Early, then it's done. So yep. that's really how I'd like to live. In footy season, I just get too tired with four yeah, kids yeah, yeah. Um, and those sort of commitments. So I'll generally try and exercise in lunchtime. Yep. And my exercise drops in footy season. Uh, if I get three exercise sessions out a week. So what's exercise for you these days, apart from chasing kids? I go to the gym and <laughs> I go to the gym and do a three to five K treadmill and some weights. Yeah. Um, I've been trying to do, I mix it up or I might do a five K run of the lake. So you still love running, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I love running. It was yeah. just so efficient yeah. time wise. Do you know um, how many Ks you reckon you've run in your life? Not a huge amount. Like I'm not a crazy, I never really run further than 5K. Right. And my main session I like is sort of eight 400s with a minute rest. So mm. I like punch eight out. Eight 400s, I mean, that's my favourite <laughs> session. I like that's punch lactic out. pain. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> or, or even recently I've been doing some 100-metre sprints. Yeah. Um, three lots of five 100-metre sprints with a lot of rest in between, but as quick as you can go. Yeah. So that's real What's spewy sort second, of yeah, territory. Yeah. You say a lot of rest. Your definition of a lot no, of rest No, no, jog, be- jog back really slowly. So sprint the 100, jog back really slowly, like walk pace, yeah. sprint, do five of them, then five minutes rest. Okay. Which is a lot of rest. Yeah. Um, and that, that makes you feel crook as a dog, yeah. you know, quickly. Hit, yeah. But uh, I think one of the things that people – 
mistakes they make with exercising, particularly as they get older, is they get slower. Yeah. And so particularly when you've got shoddy joints or Achilles tendinopathy or things like that, yeah. slow, long running is is the worst thing you do. You're much better off doing high-speed running. Yeah. It puts less strain on your joints and it's over quicker. You know, you're not doing it for two hours at a time. So I'm moving down that territory. High-intensity quality training. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and get that oxygen deficit and effectively you're exercising yeah. post-exercise for a period of time as opposed to only getting the a benefit while effect. you're going. Yeah, the afterburn effect and a lot of people don't understand, but that's, we've been put on this earth to do one thing and that's to reproduce. And as soon as your body doesn't move fast anymore, it thinks that it doesn't need to survive. So there's a hack in itself that, you know, train fast to live long. So, and uh, resistance training is obviously something that's still important because more muscle you have, it's medicine. Yeah, and it's just good for my arthritis. So I've got yeah. really arthritic shoulders. Four shoulder reconstruction. Four shoulder recos and another op. Um, and I mean, I could keep having shoulder ops yeah. as many as I like, yeah. um, <laughs> to be honest. But I, I'm not having one for the foreseeable, foreseeable future, I hope. But I do know that the more muscle bulk I have around those shoulders, the more um, just the better off it is for that arthritic joint yeah. and just to provide some support around what's a really lax joint. So I... I you know, you look at me and go, it is this prawny <laughs> weird thing he is talking about uh, no, shoulder no, definition. But bad, um, yeah. yeah, there's enough there to, to provide some support. So that's really important as well. So you do exercise not just from a high performance point of view, but for the mental side of it as well. As an athlete, I know that if I don't move, you know, I, I become very mentally sort of cranky and whatnot. Yeah, I'm the same. Yeah, really grumpy. Yeah. Um, just tired and, and just feel sloth-like. So yeah, yeah. it's probably more the mental side of things than the physical side yeah. for me now, um, but it's really important in and sleep. my life. How do you go with sleep? Because I know that we're co-inhibiting our bedroom at the moment with two kids. I've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old kicking me in the face every single night. How, how's sleep go for you with four kids? I know the twins at the end, that would have been interesting. Yeah, no, we're pretty good. The twins are two. Yeah. Um, do they sleep in the bed with you guys or? Oh, never. No, no we've no. always so been staunch been on that. So you've been staunch on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and to be honest, like when, when Oscar, our first kid, was born, yeah. you know, we'd put him in a cot and we'd be crawling in commando style yeah. trying to see if he was breathing every half an hour. Yeah. With the kids, with the twins now, they could be screaming for 20 minutes. We're yeah. like, good luck getting anyone up there. And so after a while, they just don't scream. Yeah. I mean, they, we all had our flu jabs yesterday. Uh, so Tom, <laughs> one of our twins, was a bit noisy last night. But... um. No, we're, yeah. we're, we're pretty good. How good's that, isn't it? Like, yeah, and that's why kids are so different. Like my first kid, you know, like you were alluding to there, Chris said, you know, the first one, you're creeping in every 20 minutes to see if they're breathing. You're so stressed, you're so highly strung about the first one. And then the second one comes along, you go, oh, who gives a shit? They'll be right. <laughs> that's why the second one's usually a more laid back, yeah. sort of relaxed personality. Yeah. And my first daughter's very OCD, very intense. And yeah. it's because she obviously fed off our energy. Yeah. So it's quite incredible as a, as a parent how we shape our kids. And there's 7 billion people in the world, yeah. isn't there? Most yeah. of them not living in countries like this. So, yeah. I, you know, it is... Well, I mean, you understand why we're all like it as parents because yeah. they are just so valuable and you love them so much. But as time goes on, you do start to relax a bit more. And so how do you get sleep? Would you average six, at least six hours no, of sleep? No, I'd go night? pretty I'd, – I'd get seven hours a night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't deal well with no sleep. Yeah. Um, That's the hardest thing as an athlete, isn't it? As an athlete, you know the importance of sleep and that was my biggest challenge was getting out of myself and realising that as a parent I wasn't going to get that eight hours of quality sleep a night. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing – with an athlete too, after after games, I would get about 90 minutes sleep. Yeah. I just could not sleep post-games, just yeah. all the adrenaline and the aches and pains. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just remember staring. I, I remember after my first ever game of AFL football, 
we were in Melbourne and I stayed overnight and I slept at my parents' house that night. I remember just staring at the ceiling till 7.30 the next morning. Yeah. I hadn't slept a wink. I was just that excited yeah. that I'd <laughs> play, played an AFL game. Um, and that just puts you in deficit for the whole week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But anyway, yeah. So have you got any habits or routines that you go to? I know personally I make sure that, you know, I don't look at the phone a couple of hours before bed and I try to make sure the room's nice and dark. Is there any little hacks that you... No, look, when I was struggling, I've used... um, yeah, almost like meditation podcasts look, yeah. for your sleep hygiene. But the hard thing with that is you've then got to somehow get the earphones flicked out of your ears, yeah. you know, by the time you <laughs> you sleep. So it's a real balancing act. You sort of wake up at two in the morning and you're sleeping on headphones with a phone yeah. right next to your head. Um, uh, so I've used that in the past. But no, I, I sleep fine. Every now and then I'll have some melatonin. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, no, no real problems there. Interesting. You mentioned meditation. It's a common thread with all the successful people I've spoken to from the Mark Borises of the world to, you know, some of the most successful surgeons and doctors and Chris and sports people. Meditation, something that people don't value, isn't it? Like, no, it's just so boring. Yeah. Isn't it? And I, it's like sleep, you know, you're not, you're not, we're in a society now where the harder you try, you think the more important it is. Yeah. But if you say to someone, you just go and do nothing. Yeah. You're going to get more health benefits from doing nothing. What do you mean? Just sleeping. Mm. You're going to get more benefits from not thinking too much, just meditating. They'd think you're crazy. Yeah, and they're the, the benefits for, say, professional athletes. That's where you can get real improvements now because everyone trains well. Yeah. They've got good sports science. There's no yeah. huge gains to be found there. I, I think the gains this generation of athletes will be around phone usage. Yeah. Uh, and we'll be around things like sleep. I know Manchester City had an expert came and worked with them and he, he did a story that study that correlated poor performance with players that were tweeting late at night and it really mirrored up nicely. Um, But I, you know. Shame on. Imagine how good a cricketer he could have been. But (laughs) the the cost to the change room, and I heard an NBA commissioner talk about this, the cost of the change room when people are on their phones all the time is significant and not well understood yet. Even if you're, you think back to your day when you were playing rugby or me, people weren't on their phones constantly. So if you felt anxious and you walked into the change room, there were six players there who you could actually talk to and have a laugh. (laughs) Now you walk in there, there's six players all with their head down on their phone, swiping or or scrolling. Um, And the cost to, you know, we all talk about how important cohesion is in team sport and building that camaraderie. The cost to camaraderie from players being on their phones constantly, I think significant. Yeah. And there'll be a team that decides, right, we're only going to look at our phones this 20-minute block Monday to Friday when we're in at the club. Yeah. And they'll have success. And before you know it, the whole competition will be doing it. But I look forward to seeing which club takes that plunge first mm. and how it pans out. Because I think it'll be I think it'll be material because there's very few things you see everyone doing that are negative for performance. Yeah, yeah. And I think phone addiction is negative to performance. It's probably not proven yet, but I think it is. So if you believe that and if you believe all your competitors are doing it, what an easy low-hanging fruit opportunity staring you in the face if you decide you're willing to sacrifice that short-term comfort from scrolling or or, or feeding that addiction for the long-term benefit of the success you're trying to chase. I think that's low-hanging fruit. So meditation-wise, was there an app that started you on that journey or, uh, or you were I've, able to I've sit by yourself? No, I, I read uh, John Kabat-Zinn's book, yep. Wherever You Go, There You Are, yep. which I thought was interesting. Yep. I tried uh, Eckhart Tolle's The Power yeah, of Now, power but now, yeah. did a few chapters. It was like living the present. I sort of felt I've got it. Yeah. Now, the next 10 <laughs> chapters were the same thing, yeah. anchor yeah. on your breath, and it's like, well, we had that. Page yeah. three. <laughs> um, so I don't a lot think of self-help got, books like that, like the first paragraph, you're like, oh, this is what you're yeah, about. That's a good, good I'm like, that's it. a good point, chapter yeah. one. And then- Now I've got to read a whole book on yeah, the same point. So, um, yeah, so, and then I, I have done it in various um, 
phases in my life. And invariably those phases have been times when things have been going really well for me. Uh, but it's so boring and I haven't stuck (laughs) at it. So it's on my list to get back into. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like footy season is a bit survival mode for me because of the number of nights I'm out, um, not just on the Monday and Friday, throughout the whole week. Yeah. Um, So it's on my list post-footy season. I think I have a look at Sam Harris's Waking Up. Yeah, Waking Up, yeah. And I know he's got a program that I I think I'll have a a swing at, but I make no promises as to how far along I get. I started playing chess late in my footy career for the same thing. I found meditation too boring. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I, I got into chess as the same way twofold to be present because you're focusing on what you're doing and to have something I could improve at as I got older because I was at that phase of my footy career where I was aging in dog ears (laughs) and getting (laughs) every few weeks it felt like I was getting worse and worse. So I I chose to get into chess for a little while. Uh, That's a great analogy. Aging in dog ears, that's gold. Are you you playing with someone else? I was, yeah, but once the kids came along, the the chess days are done too. So you're on the back day as well. (laughs) (laughs) And how do you eat with your kids being as busy as you are with your routine? Is is diet something you pay much attention to? You, You look great. You're obviously very lean and fit. Um, do you have a routine as far as eating? Not goes? a routine. We yeah. eat healthily, but I enjoy not being obsessive about it yeah, like yeah. I was when I was playing. Because that, that was a big part of our obsession, wasn't it? Eating was so important. I was not so. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I would have had to have had an eating disorder yeah, if I you agree. ranked it with, yeah. um, I don't know how you scale eating disorders, but <laughs> whatever I had, it yeah. would have had to have qualified as an yeah. eating disorder. And I found I'd been a professional player for 14 years 13 of those completely obsessed around yeah. what I ate. And I found once I retired, I'd go to a restaurant, would sit down and look at a menu and I, I didn't even know what I felt like eating anymore. Yeah. Because food for so long right. was, was purely fuel. about fuel and whatever yeah. I needed, whatever was the healthiest healthiest thing on that menu is what I would order. Yeah. And it took me about six months to actually <laughs> learn what I actually felt like eating and it sounds moronic. Yeah, no, no, it's no. interesting. But it's amazing what... Yeah, what, you what happens at, to you? Because look at it differently. Your mind was like, well, I don't need this for this purpose anymore. What do I need it for? Yeah. And so for and, and my diet, there were some things I was getting wrong yeah. too, particularly early on in my career. So what was that namely? Do you think? Well, so I had. Too I many refused, carbohydrates, not enough fats. Yeah, I had carbs. Yeah, yeah, I refused to eat anything that wasn't 97% fat free or less. I was the same. So I wouldn't eat avocado. Yeah. I wouldn't eat salmon. <laughs> I was lean. Yeah. You know, I'd be comfortable eating lollies. Yeah. yeah. Not fat free. Yeah. Um, because they were fat free, yeah. but everything in the fridge, that plastic cheese that's, yeah. you know, rubbery, 97%, yeah. milk, 98%. Yeah. Um, that seems so backwards now when I look at that. It does. It does, it's but that's how we we're educated and that was that's how right. nutritional science was. That, yeah. that was the devil. Like, I don't know how you two became such top players. <laughs> well, I mean. Amazing. But it does make yeah. you lean. Yeah, yeah, There's something in yeah. that if you're exercising a lot. Yeah. Like I had zero fat of me. I was yeah. sick all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but gee, I was lean. <laughs> <laughs> so true is that. We're, we're, a lot of these foods that were demonized, which we now know are actually better for us. So it's amazing that um, – you know, as an athlete, and it's even hard, like Chris said, when you retire, you, you look at that and subconsciously, you know, why do we call fat, fat? It's stood no chance, has it really? Because you associate the word fat with a bad connotation, which is being overweight. So if you say something's high in fat as a food, straight away, you've got that negative connotation between saying that food's bad for you. So fat, fat isn't bad just because it's named avocados, nuts. Yeah. Mm. It's a real psychological thing, particularly for people that grew up in the 80s and 90s. Yeah when fat was demonized the way it was. So, yeah, you, you really um, hit the nail on the head there. It's really hard to make that transition. And, you, yeah, but you say amazing it was you still managed to play well. There is a strong aspect, even if it wasn't the perfect diet by any stretch. Yeah. The fact that I thought it was yeah. and the fact I stuck to it 
just 100%. so disciplinedly. There is some utility that comes 100%. from feeling like you yeah. have actually nailed it. That yeah, when yeah. you're out on the ground, you know, in an important game, you look at the guy next to you and you're genuinely convinced he couldn't have sacrificed yeah. more when it comes to, to eating. That was the key, yeah. wasn't it? That's the psychological yeah. key. I remember training, you know, lifting certain amount of weights, you know, on the Thursday before I'd play on a Sunday to psychologically tell myself I was ready. But from a performance point of view and sports science point of view, yeah. it was detrimental. My body wouldn't have recovered from that training session. Yeah. So I was running out in the field for the most important training session of the week, which is the game. And I was in a depleted state as a result of doing something in the gym that was going to help me for my mental state. So the, the irony is mentally, you guys were both there. And then that's what really brought you to success because you were like, I'm on this. The placebo this effect. Mm. And I think that's the balance. That's, that's really the, fascinating. That's the art of coaching. If you look at coaching, uh, whatever the dynamics are, let's say it's 80% science, 20% art. Yeah. It's that art around the psychological piece that's yeah. really hard to to teach. It's sort yeah. of got to be felt and learnt through experience. Yeah. Um, whereas the science, you, you can really do some reading and you can learn that, but yeah. it's that last missing 20% piece that's art that's very hard to teach. So now you eat more fat in your diet and something that you've accepted. Yeah, like, and I've mate. dropped off carbs. Yeah, yeah Not too. completely. Yeah, yeah. But – um, I like having no rules, so yeah, yeah. I'll eat whatever I want, yeah. you know, <laughs> basically. But I I used, even post-footy, I would often have toast for breakfast, um, might have a sandwich for lunch and pasta for dinner. That yeah, wasn't yeah. unusual. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I almost never have bread for breakfast anymore. Yeah, yeah. I might have some eggs and yeah, yeah. whatever. And and even for lunch, really. And I'll still eat, eat rice or potatoes and things like that. But yeah. things like pasta and bread, I've really dropped them out yeah, quite yeah. a lot. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? What about your kids? How do you get them to eat breakfast in the morning? Is that a challenge? Uh, no, they're pretty good. Pretty Smoothies good. have been yeah, the help. Yeah, yeah. So you can squeeze a lot in a smoothie. It's and the go-to in a, that. If, if you can make a milkshake in the morning for your kids, it's yeah. the way to go. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they're pretty good eaters. My daughter's a bit fussy and eats way too much sugar, but um, <laughs> yeah, I don't lose any sleep over it. Tony, a couple of last things. You mentioned books before and we yep. ask, our, ask our guests commonly across these Hacking the Hackers is if you could give a book to someone, which book would it be and why? Uh, I'd give, I've mentioned him a few times today, but I'd give out 12 Rules of, for Life by Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson. Uh, yep. I love that. Uh, and I've given it, I've probably given about 10 of them Away. I used to know a bloke who had his favourite book at home, but he had forty-five copies of it on a on a shelf. Yeah. And anytime someone came over and said, well, "Why have you got this?" He goes, "It's my favourite." Here you go. Here's the yeah, copy. Yeah. He just give it to them. Shantaram's probably my favourite book in terms of page turner. Yep. Uh, but in terms of assistance with working out what's going on in life, I think Jordan Peterson's provided the most assistance with that for me. And then yeah. the best piece of advice you've been given. Oh. <laughs> That's a tough one, isn't it? So when the when the ducks, when the ducks are quacking, feed them, which means that when uh, you're on a stock and there's liquidity and it's going up, make sure you sell some. All right, good. And then I suppose the thing I always fascinated if you look back to when you were playing, what was the advice you'd give yourself now when you're twenty year old self? Oh, uh, so the the key thing is to work out it's not as important as you think it is. Yeah, because I was so stressed when I was playing footy. Yeah, um, really. Yeah, so really, was I, really yeah. anxious personality, um, really stressed. And that's sort of the advice I'd give myself. But if I wasn't those things, I wouldn't have been the player I was. Yep. So it was that anxiety which was causing me to train more because I was convinced other players would be catching up if yeah, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. So Eat the um, plastic cheese, you know. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's uh, I mean, I think the thing which sometimes people miss is that um, – when you're playing a professional sport, you're really chasing contentment from achieving something as mm. opposed to happiness. Mm-hmm. If I'd have wanted to be happier as a player, I would have said, don't worry, it's not going to matter 
you'll be fine. But when you're chasing contentment and your success relies on sacrificing more than others, um, those two things are often opposed. So that's the advice I'd give. I wouldn't have listened to it when I was playing it, so it wouldn't have mattered. (laughs) So essentially try to enjoy it a bit more. That's what I would have liked to have yeah. done. I had the realisation with about a year to go that I'm going to enjoy my footy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And from that moment on, we barely won a game. It was <laughs> yeah. the least enjoyable time of my football career. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah. That's so, it's so true. I can reflect on the same thing. I look back at my career and say, I wish I enjoyed the moments a bit more. But the reason why I was successful was because I was never satisfied. Yeah. And I was able to push myself and suffer and, you know, sacrifice more than the other guy. And, you know, that, that's why I got to where I got. Whereas if I had that attitude of just, oh, yeah, everything's great and, you know, rat's ass, I would never have been where yeah. I was. So. Yeah. I mean, I remember we, we won the premiership at West Coast in 06. I dislocated my shoulder in the game, had a reco on the Wednesday. I was running a week later in a sling. Wow. Down at Sandy, charging around. The doctor said don't <laughs> run for three or four weeks, which would have been good advice. Yeah. Before you know it, I had groin injury from running around, you know, with an arm in a sling. So just to just never be able to just sit and enjoy what had happened was an issue while I was playing. But like you said, it was also beneficial to performance. And you've been very successful, not just in the investment side of it, but tell us a little bit about the journey with uh, the health and fitness business you've got, Jagged. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, Jagged's been a business that a friend and I bought, Steve Green, and I bought with uh, another guy or a couple other guys in 2013 now. So why sports apparel? What got you into that? Well, we were starting, uh, we had an events business at the time and we were doing, uh, well, Steve was mainly organising bike rides, uh, corporate bike rides. We had a couple of thousand people doing a bike ride around Geelong and we were getting bike Guernseys made up for that and we were buying them off a a bike Guernsey manufacturer and they were costing us a fair bit of money and we knew they were making a a good margin on them. And we thought there's probably more money just in supplying these couple of thousand Guernseys, is yeah. there, jerseys as there is in the actual event. So we explored making them ourselves and then we th- we came across Jagged, which was a triathlon brand at the time and yeah. they had some bike gear as well. And so we thought we'd buy that, uh, which we ended up doing. Uh, that had been going since 94, I think. Been going for quite a, a period of time, maybe yeah. 2004. Um, so we bought that and that's how we got into it. You know, in a brief overview, we ended up. You still want to pay more for Guernsey, so you thought you'd buy them out? Yeah, we ended up making uh, women's active wear, triathlon gear, bike gear, and men's active wear. The, before long, the women's active wear was 92% of, of the sales, and we just really decided it made sense to focus, to focus our energies on that um, rather than being so broad. So, so that's what we do, did. We got rid of the tri first, then we got rid of the bike, and now we still do some men's active wear. We're a predominantly uh, female active wear business. And your wife's involved in that side of the business? She is, she? yeah. She's she's uh, got her fingers in lots of different pies and she's obviously yeah. got a really strong digital following and she's got a great creative eye as well. So yeah. she um, she works in there. She's got a range which she designs and along with Steve's wife, who's the creative director, um, you know, she's really influential on the overall look and, and aesthetic of, of the brand. And you don't work together in that business? No. Not really, no. So no. I was on the board of Jagged until about a year ago once I took on the Carlton Yep. Directorship, it just felt like there was too much time in non-exec roles. So yeah, yeah. I'm no longer on the board but still have an active involvement in it. Um, and we don't cross over much. You won't That's be good. surprised. That's why to, you're so happy. You won't be surprised <laughs> to learn. I don't have a huge say in the design or uh, yeah. the design aesthetic. My skills lie elsewhere. But um, – but that's been good. And that's also led us to the, the AOA journey as well, which has been yeah, a, they're a really good that. partner of, of Jagged. Um, their Vitality Program is something 
both Steve, the CEO of Jagged and, and myself have been a part of since it founded. We're yeah. both advisory board members. And that's really just encouraging people to make one change in their life to become a, a healthier person, which we think is a really good message. And we know how passionate Damien Mew, the CEO, there yeah. is about that message. That's the key, isn't it? People try to go on this health journey and they try to do too much at once and too extreme. They'll say, it's dry July, I'm not going to drink any beer, I'm yeah. going to go on a no-carb diet. And it's the small changes on a consistent basis that really lead to results. And that's what AIA are doing with this program. They are. And it becomes binary mm. if you have that mindset where you're either perfect or you're terrible. And mm. people beat themselves up yeah. once they have a bit of chocolate cake or they slip up or they drink a beer in July yeah. and they said they weren't going to. Yeah. And they throw the whole thing out. So... One of the things I do with Vitality and AI and their program is is uh, experiment with different sports and make myself look like a fool. Yeah, yeah. Because one of the, the the bits we've learned when we speak to people and why they don't exercise is because they're embarrassed and they think people will be looking at them and making fun of them. Yeah, right. Um, and I think what you learn after a while is everyone's got their own hang-ups they're dealing with and people just don't care. Yeah. And if they do, poor them because they don't have an, enough in their life to uh, to focus on. So the message is get out there, try something new. Um and have a crack. Yeah, small change leads to big change. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, Jody, just before we wrap up, it might be a cheesy question, but I always find it interesting. Do you have a life motto or something that you seems to pop up quite a lot in your head that you live by? Well, it's, I don't know if it's a life motto, but the, probably the most important saying that rolls around my head is a definition of hell. And so the definition of hell is the last is your last day on earth meeting the person you could have been if you met your potential uh, and dealing with that if you don't feel you've reached your potential. So that, that, that's sort of how I define um, what I don't want to end up as, someone wishing they had have reached their potential and, and being bitter that I haven't been able to do it and not having enough time left to make that happen. So that's a clumsy way to say what my life motto is, but that's it. Love it. Have no regrets. And I've got no regrets from today's podcast. What a cracking interview. Thank you so much, Thanks, Mate. Adam. Appreciate Legend. it. Thank Cheers. you. Health Hacker was created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Written and presented by Adam McDougall. Produced and presented by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. To listen to more episodes, search Health Hacker Podcast. Listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app.